WOWDLP 94.3 FM. Dear listeners, you are tuned in to WOWD 94.3 FM. This is Interfaith-ish. Every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. I am Jack Gordon, and I, dear listeners, am your in-studio silver surfer, transfigured by the power cosmic, animating our awesome airwaves to explore the effulgent ends of existence on an expedition of interreligious, intercultural, intergalactic interlocution. And so, without further delay, to me, my board, let us get into some interfaith-ish... Dear listeners, a mere 48 hours ago, I was far, far away from the homey radio studio in which we now sit. Where precisely? Well, believe it or not, I was in a distant corner of the Democratic Republic of Congo in a small town called Monono. Was I there to quote the 20th century theologians Jake and Elwood Blues on a mission from God? No, dear listeners, I would not say that. But nevertheless, I did spread the good news of WOWD to the friends I met there. You see, for the past week, I was working with a local group of teenage radio journalists who are raising awareness in their community about the dangers of child labor, particularly in the mining industry, which is a major source of revenue for that region. Together, we collaborated on a story about the efforts being led in Monono to reduce the number of children working in mines and to provide sustainable alternative livelihoods for them, their parents, and their families. And as a token of my thanks for a job well done, I brought a set of our new WOWD t-shirts to give to each of the youth. These are gifts which they sported proudly. And you can see a photo of our merry band shortly on Tacoma Radio's Instagram, at Tacoma Radio. And if you yourselves would like to look as good as our crew did, you can check out TacomaRadio.org for more information on how to buy a nifty WOWD t-shirt for yourself. Yes, dear listeners, it was a challenging and exhausting week. And to be honest, right up until takeoff on Monday, I wasn't quite sure I was going to make it back here in time for this show. But I am grateful for the experience, grateful for the opportunity to have visited DRC for the first time. And grateful to be now back in our fair city, spending time today with two of my favorite people in the whole wide world. In studio with me today is poet and educator Derek Weston-Brown. Derek is the author of the 2011 poetry collection Wisdom Teeth. He is an alum of Kaveh Kanem and the Vona writing programs and was the first poet in residence at Busboys and Poets. He's also a practicing Buddhist with the Insight Meditation Zen Tradition. Welcome, Derek. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. And I'm likewise thrilled to be joined by the newly minted <laughs> elder 
Aaron Jenkins of New Solid Rock Church Ministries. AJ is Vice President of, of Policy and Advocacy at the Expectations Project, a national nonprofit organization that organizes faith communities to advocate for quality public education. And under President Obama, he was also director of the White House Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships at the United States Department of Commerce. Gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to have you here on Interfaith-ish. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm actually in the right microphone this time. There we go. The wrong one. <laughs> we got you, Derek. We got yeah. you. So, Aaron, um, I I want to just start off by saying that, you know, I was out of town this past weekend, sure. and so I wasn't able to celebrate your new appointment um, as an elder in your church at mm -hmm. New Solid Rock Church Ministries. So I first want to congratulate you on, on your appointment as being an elder. Thank you. you. Know, you're obviously have been a great pillar in our community broadly, and, and I'm glad to see you're advancing in, in that work and getting that recognition that you're in your community. I appreciate it, man. Thanks. Um, and I, I wanted to just ask if you would share with us, what, what does that mean for you? What does it mean to be an elder in your church and how does that fit into the leadership of, of your church community? Sure. Happy to explain it. And thanks for having me on the show, Jack. It's, a, it's an honor to be here on a beautiful spring day in Washington, yes. D.C. Um, I attend New Solid Rock Church Ministries. It's a Pentecostal church uh, founded by the Reverend Terrence and Tanya Melvin. Uh, we started in D.C., Washington, D.C., and then several years ago moved out to Landover Hills, Maryland. Uh, the church is a Pentecostal church, uh, Pentecost. Uh, is an event that happened early in the church. Uh, it's an event that was marked by, you know, from a theological perspective, the presence of the Holy Spirit upon 12 disciples who not only believed in Jesus, but then also shared the good news of the gospel with the people of the time in different languages. Uh, it's a denomination under Protestantism. Uh, the church itself um, is really focused on not only spreading the gospel, but also community service. So in the communities that we've been in, We've done food basket giveaways. We've done clothing giveaways. Uh, we've gone out to the community. We've adopted schools. Uh, so there's a there's a huge emphasis not only on our faith, but the action that's required of our faith. Mm -hmm. uh, for the last few years, uh, I accepted a call to ministry, which means, uh, in my understanding, uh, I understood that I had a responsibility to share the gospel not only uh, as a member, but also in leadership. Uh, so. I took classes at my church, I uh, told my pastor, I prayed about it, and there was a period of time where I studied uh, with other ministers, mm -hmm. uh, and at the end of that study period, I, I, received, I took an exam uh, okay. before a committee. Uh -huh. so like this taking is, the SAT? Like taking the SAT, you know, exam? sweat wow. on my brow, right. <laughs> couldn't eat, butterflies in my stomach. Uh, and this committee was taxed with not only asking questions, but really trying to understand not only my commitment to the faith, but also the commitment to ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, and after about 30 to 45 minutes, maybe almost an hour, the time just went by. Okay. Uh, but it was, it was really thoughtful questions uh, of a committee comprised of lay members, you know, people in the community, uh, pastors, ministers, uh, other elders in the church. Uh, and what was fascinating about the experience was I have friends who've gotten their PhD, who've gone on to higher education, and they talk about being uh, ABD, all but dissertation. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a connection between, again, not only studying, but also, you know, a period of testing. So after passing that test, uh, the recommendation was that I would become an elder. So what that means is I'm, a, I'm an ordained minister in the church. Uh, I can carry out the sacraments of the church. And I like the way my pastor put it. He says it's increased responsibility. 
Right. Uh, and I think that that relates really closely to the idea of community, that as we grow, the responsibility as we go from a young a child to a young person, a young person to an adult, is that we do take on more responsibilities within the community. Mm -hmm. uh, so I feel honored to have that role uh, and uh, take it into my, not only my personal life, but also my professional life as well. Right, right. Well, you got those broad shoulders. So yeah, I'm sure man. Putting shoulders. those responsibilities on those shoulders are going to be well-placed, <laughs> and the community is going to be well-served by your, by your place there. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. So um, can you tell us, tell us a little bit more about, about um, you talked a bit about the Pentecostal, um, what, what the meaning of that word is. Sure. Um, what, what is distinct about the Pentecostal tradition from other Christian denominations from your perspective? Sure. I mean, it shares a lot of the same basic tenets, the belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, uh, that the Holy Spirit is very present. Uh, when I talk about that, uh, there's this idea, concept called the Trinity, uh, that God is uh, made up in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the belief in Christianity is that it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that allows Christians the ability not only uh, to to believe in God through faith, but also uh, it's an encouragement to do the right thing. So there's this moral compass. If you think of Dr. King, he always talks about uh, the beloved community and doing what's right. Uh, and with from a faith perspective, that God actually meets us, joins us, and encourages us to do mm -hmm. do those right things. So mm -hmm. that that the difference, I guess, between the faiths is just that really strong adherence that. Pentecost wasn't just a one-time thing, mm. but that belief that God's presence uh, should be expected uh, and that it should empower us to do the work that's needed to spread the good news and also to do uh, the morally right thing on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And are there particular rituals or customs and things that are, that are um, uh, unique to Pentecostal tradition? It's a great question. I think, again, the, the, the presence of uh, the Holy Spirit is something that is really encouraged, I think, uh, one of the things is that, you know, Pentecost as a holiday is something that's really important. Uh, so that takes place after Easter. Uh, there is the, again, the practice of your faith, not only, again, in reading the scriptures and, you know, the daily practice of, of reading scripture and having your basic faith, but then how does your faith live outside in action? How does it live uh, in the community? How does it take place out, both in the church and outside of the church? Beautiful. Beautiful, thank you. Yeah. So, Derek, bringing you into the conversation here. Yeah. So, you you come yourself from a, a Christian family background, but you've been a practicing Buddhist for some time now. So, tell us a little bit about that journey. How did you get from from where you grew up to to how you practice now? Okay, um, you know, coming from from North Carolina, I'm born born and raised in Charlotte, North Carolina, and really just raised in a, in the Baptist tradition, uh, growing up in a church that. Like my mother attended, you know, my my grandmother attended, my aunt attended. So it very much was like something that was connected not only within, you know, my family, but also the community was a Friendship Missionary Baptist Church. And even growing up there as a kid, um, one interesting thing was we went to church and, you know, I did, I did Bible study and went to um to we had like youth youth, youth Sunday service, you know, for the right. fidgety kids yep. that you know, <laughs> really weren't going to be, you know, pretty well in the main sanctuary. So they're like, oh, kids, uh -huh. here's youth, here's your youth service. So that's where we really, you know, got an uh, understanding from a child's perspective of the Bible and the biblical stories mm -hmm. and things like that. But definitely, as as I got older, it I I very much would you know would go to church, but then I would say even though being raised Baptist, we weren't a every Sunday, 
you know, go to church. And my mother also uh, was very clear when I got older, my, my teens, and I was kind of mm -hmm. like, well, I don't really want to go to church. And she was very much like, well, you have to explore why you don't want to go. And I didn't really have a, exp a, a, a clear, articulate explanation of why I didn't want to go. At the time, I'd say it's probably like, the culture, the culture of the church at that time, which is something that just wasn't working with me mm -hmm. and such. And even with some like the kids that I that I knew, we were in different communities and stuff, and we went to the same high school, but it still just didn't for some reason didn't sit, not didn't sit well with me. I just was like I didn't have the motivation to go. Mm -hmm. um, very much was a, definitely aware that I'm a child of God and everything, but still was just like I don't know if this was the place for mm. me. And so my mother very much said, "All right, well." Here's the thing, you know, as you get older, you know, you have to, you, you decide, you know, where your path is going to be as far as faith is concerned. And you can go and explore if that's what you feel you need to do. And so eventually, I think throughout high school and college, um, read up, read up on, you know, went to different churches, read up on different religions, even talked to some of my friends once you get into college. You meet people from different religions. So, you know, talking to my friends who were Muslim um, and then meeting like also meeting like black Mennonites for the first time, which mm -hmm. I didn't know. I was like, what was, what's this? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, but I always felt this, this pull and maybe that's through poetry <clears throat> and in getting introduced to, to poets like Rumi or, or, um, in, you know, talking about like East, East you say Eastern religions or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then, um, what ended up happening was, uh, I think around the time I moved up here and I was always interested in, in Buddhism and a friend of mine introduced me to, you know, I hate the, the term, but the the Tina Turner Buddhism. The well, well, I have not people, heard that phrase right, before. I know, Tina when people Buddhism. people yeah. always think about uh, if you've seen what's love got to do with right. it. She's chanting, okay, and she and that and she was a she was connected with the school of Buddhism, which was Soka Gokai International, oh, which was the uh, Nichiren Daishonin, right, right, Buddhism, she, yeah. which yes, yeah, which yeah. you know focuses on you know you know particular sections of the Lotus Sutra and chanting is like a really major okay. portion of it and so i got you know introduced to 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 sgi and and was like oh this is awesome but i also wanted to see the other schools right. and so eventually um you know saw was invited to this community the people of color sangha or community of the insight meditation community of washington dc and i will i will say this though i what kept me probably from making that move to buddhism you know as something to, a path to follow was just guilt because mm. growing up in like a, a christian household and specifically with my grandmother i didn't know how she was going to feel about it and okay. so finally telling her that you know this is the path that i was following she her i was i was worried she's gonna be like well you're wrong and this mm -hmm. is and you're going you know it's, it's it's over for you but she just said i well derek i just need to know do you have a do you have a place of sanctuary i said yeah i do she said do you have a community or what's the sangha i said it's like it's like congregation it's mm. it's it's mm -hmm. your it's your family she said okay she said and how about prayer i said meditation she said right. okay she said but you you believe in something larger than you do, do you believe i was like yeah she's she, just she's checking the she box making sure she's like oh baby you fine you know as long as you <laughs> baby you fine you're fine you're good you all right okay and so grandma knows grandma was like you're fine and so yeah that's kind of the path beautiful that's beautiful bit so, so um, insight meditation, this Zen tradition. Then, tell us what does that what does that mean to you? What does that how does that organize itself? Well, it's interesting because I when I for me with Buddhism, 
they're the the major tenets, which is you have the the four noble truths and you have the eightfold path, which is uh kind of the the enlightenment or the uh, or the the awakening that um Prince Siddhartha had. Mm. And so Buddha the term Buddha means for me and from my understanding means awake, awakened one. And so, you know, during the, the the trials of of uh of Siddhartha where he he goes through different trials of figuring out what's going on with his life and he and he starts to realize several truths from long meditation and he also practiced different teachings to try to figure out and reach this enlightenment because he had lived a life of being a prince of luxury and mm -hmm. he'd never seen death he had never seen poverty you know he had he had the life but then he had this awakening and for me it's the four noble truths and i'll there's so many different translations but let me break my my happy book out to break that down because <laughs> uh, there are times where i i lose it but really the four noble truths are based on like there is pain or suffering um there is also the origin of pain in this world or suffering of living beings uh the next noble truth is there is a way to stop suffering and the way to stop suffering uh is the eightfold path and so the eightfold path is like pretty much like eight tenets to to you know find your way out of this continued suffering mm -hmm. you know in order to reach this enlightenment and also to a degree to not only it's also about not only just working on yourself but also um engaging and connecting with others and this mindfulness mm -hmm. of that you are part of a larger wheel of, mm -hmm. of suffering in in the world so right speech right thought right viewing um right conduct right livelihood right effort right mindfulness and rightful right concentration those mm -hmm. are the basics but in zen buddhism it's really about you don't want meditating meditating like really going within but it's also about um oh, what's that word um uh, you know here, here i am big old poet and i can't think of the word um <laughs> and intuition okay because one of the things that in the in the sutras that 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 buddha talked about a lot of monks write about is buddha said um don't just don't just I, I liken it to what uh i love reading rainbow so there was always the part in lavar burton at the end where all the kids are sharing their stories like the mm -hmm. books that they love and then lavar burton would be like yeah this is a great book but you don't have to take my word for it. <laughs> and it and so for buddhism it's very much don't just take my word for it don't just take don't just read the doctrines mm -hmm. you got to go out there and you have to try this out mm -hmm. it, it isn't just oh, i read it you know, there it is. It's like go out into the world and try try this out, which is like the right speech and right action. See if this, you know, if this works back to the thing of of, of the civic engagement right. and and actually, you know, and, you know, acts of faith. If right. this is the path you're going to follow, let's try it out. Beautiful. It works. Beautiful. If you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking with poet Derek Weston Brown, a practicing Buddhist and Pentecostal elder, minister, Aaron <laughs> Jenkins, who works with the Public Education Advocacy Organization, the Expectations Project. Um, Derek, you've been talking about, uh, you mentioned a little bit about the, um, the connection between poetry and spirituality. You know, you can see this in the metaphor and allegories that we find in so many religious texts, as well as themes, you know, from the great, for example, Sufi poets like Rumi and Hafez. So what influence do you see your Buddhist practice having directly on your poetry? 
Wow. Definitely um, patience mm -hmm. and also mindfulness. Patience in the in the sense of I've always had a hard time with one uh, being being very impatient with myself about why haven't you gotten this? Why don't you understand that? And really, um, even poems are very much a it's a, it, to me it's about patience because I can write 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 a poem. Um, and then uh, I'll have those expectations of they're supposed to be this, these amazing pieces right there. But then mm -hmm. the understanding, especially with, with Buddhism, is you realize this takes work. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's craft, it's understanding, and the idea that you're growing. And, and also just being mindful not only of also how you approach a poem and how you write it, um, but also to realize kind of like with, with the acts, the act, well, the actions that you take that, I also have I've learned to let go of my poems. There's a point where I said, if I write this poem, it's always going to be mine. Mm -hmm. It's mine. And I had a, another poet tell me, well, you know, once you put your poem out into the world as a, you know, it's published, published, right. or you read it, it's now going out. It's 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 someone else's because now they're taking this message of the poem and and working it into what what mm -hmm. they want to work in. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, no, the poem is mine. Mm -hmm. But it's very much a thing about in Buddhism when they talk about um, attachment, sometimes learning how to let go. Sometimes that attachment to particular things, material items or, or old stories that served, that served us in the past, but may not be as, as, as good now in the present. It's time to let some of those old stories go, like as you grow. And yeah. so it's kind of the same thing as patience. And it's also learning to let go and, yeah. Such. Is, are those lessons then that you try to transfer to your, your students as well? You're, you're an educator. You work mm -hmm. in, in numerous schools in the area as well as in uh, local youth detention centers. So are those some of the lessons that you try to communicate to the, to the youth when you're, when you're teaching them about poetry? Definitely. But you know what, what always seems to happen is an interesting thing as we talk about, it, and I always say practicing Buddhist. It's because, you know, I'm, I'm not there. I'm always practicing. And mm -hmm. sometimes... The, the the younger students they remind me mm. oh wow you know wow i don't have to uh be so possessive of my poems so they run or there'll be a point where they're like oh well this poem wasn't good that's okay i'll just go back and and i'll work on another one or they have such a a giving nature of letting their poems go so easily or they don't hold back mm. so that even that that guardedness sometimes they're able to drop it a lot easier than than i am and so that's to me, that's a really big thing about trust, you know, yeah. trusting who's going to read it or where the poem is going to go um, or just trusting that you're going to do the work. The poem is going to reach whoever it needs to reach. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, those are some of the lessons of just going out there and, and just. Yeah, I think there's just trusting in the work that you that you put out there. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. yeah. Aaron, you're also currently working as, as an advocate for public. Uh, education, mm -hmm. organizing faith communities through the Expectations Project. So tell us a little bit about, about that work and how does that connect with um, with the work of either your faith practice or, or others that you know are connected to the organization? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, there are 50 million children in America that are public school uh, educated, uh, 5 million in private school, uh, and what happens is that uh, the the importance of that is that when you look at our schools, the question is, is there equity? And not is there equality, right? Not mm -hmm. is, does everyone have the same box to stand on, but is there equity? That if there's a shorter child and a taller child, that the shorter child gets 
what that child needs to see, what they need to see. Mm -hmm. And I think when we think of public education, you know, if you think of who was that teacher that changed your life, who was Mm -hmm. that teacher that made the greatest impact, you know, you think of that teacher and you think of who was that teacher that wasn't the best teacher or who didn't have the greatest impact. And you realize that where the strengths uh, that students possess or the things that they don't know have a large part to play, particularly in public education, that are things outside of their control. Uh, but for adults, for communities that know that, you know, a question I sometimes ask is, what's the best school in your community? What's the best public school? What's the worst school? If you think about it, every year we graduate students from those schools. So whether it's the best school or the worst school, kids are being educated there or not educated, and then they're told to go to college, go into the workforce. And the question is, have we prepared them to do that? And if the answer is no, even if it's for one child, then there's something that we need to do about that. So mm-hmm. the idea of the Expectations Project is that in our faith traditions, uh, the call for justice uh, the, and the responsibility of making sure that justice is served is something that goes beyond um, you know, the, the doing of good work, but it's also thinking of ideas of advocacy and systemic change. Uh, so the Expectations Project was founded by Dr. Nicole Baker-Fulgham, Uh, She had the idea that faith communities had a responsibility, given that central drive for justice and responsibility, to make sure that public schools, no matter what the zip code, have equity, that that students who go to a low-performing school are getting the resources and things they need to become a high-functioning school, Mm -hmm. and that that doesn't take away from other schools that are Mm -hmm. Mm high-functioning. So you mentioned earlier that um, your your church community, New Solid Rock, Mm -hmm. does uh, uh, adopts schools? You mm-hmm. use that term, adopt schools. So sure. is that is that part of the type of program that that the expectation project is encouraging or facilitating? Yeah. So we we start we meet churches where they are. Um, we meet faith communities where they are. Organizations that do this work. The idea is that there's something that many groups do, uh, many churches or many faith communities do, called compassionate service. That's when you see a need and you meet the need. Mm-hmm. So if there needs to be a backpack giveaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there needs to be uh, reading assistance that's done. Uh, when we think of systemic change, the question that we ask ourselves constantly is, you know, for advocacy, are we creating systemic change to systemic problems? So, you know, there's, I like to think of it like this. When I worked with high school students, uh, if someone got a cut, I had to have the right size Band-Aid for the mm-hmm. cut, right? right. Mm-hmm. And if, if there is a cut beyond what my Band-Aid can do, I take that child to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And if you apply that concept uh, for some of the things we know, you know, we look at school discipline practices that... At a large rate, black and Latino students are suspended at a much higher rate than white students. You know, there's a cause of alarm. If we look at graduation rates uh, in different cities, if we take Washington, D.C., for example, that if the graduation rates aren't meeting the national standard, there needs to be something done about that. Uh, so we have five policy areas that we look at, and we work with faith communities to educate them to start where they are. If they're doing what my church does, compassionate service, adopting a school, uh, we know that they're in the community, they're engaged, and we say, how can we increase your engagement to solve some of the systemic issues that create the problems that they're working on? Mm-hmm. Great, great. You're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We've been talking with Aaron Jenkins of the Expectations Project yeah. and poet Derek Weston-Brown. We'll be back after a quick break.
You're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM, and that was the group Baha'i Voices of Lubumbashi from the Democratic Republic of Congo. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I was in the DRC this past week, and a highlight of my trip was briefly visiting the Baha'i community in Lubumbashi. Lumbashi, which is the second largest city in the DRC, happens to also be home to one of the most highly regarded Baha'i communities in the world, known for various social action projects they're carrying out locally, particularly in regards to literacy and education. You know, whenever I have the opportunity to travel, I typically look up the local Baha'i community, which is my faith community, as soon as possible, and it's, it's a great opportunity to make a personal connection in this new place that I've landed in. So I'm curious, dear listeners, have you been abroad recently and visited a local religious community there, either your own or from another tradition? You can tell us about it, what inspired you and what may have changed in your perspective after that experience. Email us at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. As a non-commercial radio station, WOWD, Tacoma Radio relies on your support to pay for rent, equipment, engineering, audio production training, and other operational costs. You can donate your support to us securely online at TacomaRadio.org. If you prefer to donate to us by check, you can make your check payable to Historic Tacoma and write radio in the memo. Mail it to 7328 Carroll Avenue, Tacoma Park, 20912. Thank you for all your generous and very necessary financial support. This is Jack Gordon, and we're back on Interfaith-ish. Turning back to our main conversation, today we're talking with poet Derek Weston-Brown, a practicing Buddhist, and Aaron Jenkins, an elder in the Pentecostal tradition. Aaron, this weekend, Reverend James Cohn, known as the founder of Black Liberation Theology, passed away. And I was curious if, in light of that, um, you could share your understanding of what black liberation theology means and what influence it's had on your life. Sure. You know, um, things are never, um, timing is never lost. There was a friend of mine, uh, his name is Delante. Uh, he pointed out to me that uh, Reverend Cohn passed. Uh, and I, I spoke earlier, we've been speaking generally about community, and I spoke earlier about the responsibilities we have as we grow in a community. Uh, and it, I think of it, you know, as almost a baton passing, you know, when you step into, and, and whether it's your faith tradition, your community, when you step into a role of leadership, you know, you have to look at those who went before you uh, to help influence the direction you're going to take. Uh, that concept of Sankofa that uh, comes from the Akan tradition in Ghana, mm-hmm. kind of looking back to know which way you, to go forward right. is important. And it resonates with me as, you know, black liberation theology as defined by Reverend Cohn was really about justice, racial justice. It's how do you bring the Gospels together, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? How do you bring the tenets of this tradition that talk about going and spreading good news with the idea of justice, right, which is just treatment or behavior? Uh, I think Reverend Cohn was someone who said, you know, he's quoted as saying he's one of the angriest people. Uh, and I think his anger came from a place of when his faith was not being lived out in the community. You know, growing up in, a, in the segregated South in Arkansas and then seeing the impact of the message of Dr. King, which is a message of love, but then seeing, you know, and hearing the truths that Malcolm X was speaking in New York, watching the turbulent 60s when many of our leaders were assassinated, not only Dr. King and Malcolm X, but the Kennedy brothers. You know, I could see how that could shape an idea that says, 
uh, a faith that talks about love means that love must be lived out loud, and that's what justice looks like. Uh, so, you know, as I think of this month as, you know, the Reverend William Barber and the repairs of the breach are looking to do uh, the 50th commemoration, not even commemoration, but really looking at uh, the questions of economic justice in our community of poverty uh, and the work that they're doing. You have the 50th commemoration of the assassination of Dr. King. You have this weekend the opening of the Legacy Museum in mm -hmm. Montgomery, Alabama, Brian Stevenson and the work of the Equal Justice Initiative, that these pieces are, are interconnected. They're not, they're not random. And for people of faith, when these things start to happen, you know, you're supposed to pay attention. And the responsibility, I think, you know, with the Reverend Cohn, that's not lost on me, is that in some ways, from a cultural perspective and a, a faith perspective, I think that I have a responsibility uh, to, to continue on in the traditions that have come before me mm -hmm. from persons such as Reverend Cohn and others who, who push for justice today. It's not something that we wait for. It's right. not someone else's responsibility. You know, it's, it's, it's our responsibility. And for a personal perspective, it's my responsibility. Mm -hmm. You know, Derek, we think a lot about um, some of these type of philosophies, figures in, in terms of the, the Christian tradition, because in, in the U.S. there's such a strong... Um, presence of figures like MLK and so forth, who who you know stood um, um, very firmly in there in their Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if if there's for you also an intersection that you see um, that maybe we don't hear about so often um, between uh, Buddhist practice and y how you conceive of your your concept and identity as a black man. Okay. Well, I definitely want to talk about the, the intersection, especially when we talk about the Christian tradition and Buddhist tradition, mm -hmm. because then I, one of the key terms that in Buddhism is this is this term called you're a bodhisattva, which is like a spiritual warrior. Mm -hmm. So you're, it's it's about that act and it's act being active and it's about justice. And so one of the I'd say like Zen Zen priests that I think about is uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, from who was also nominated by. Dr. King for a uh, Nobel Peace Prize, mm -hmm. you know, especially during that period of the v of the, talking about the Vietnam War, when that's the work that he was doing. He lives in Plum Village now in in France, but still very much when I think about Thich Nhat Hanh, he has these fourteen precepts of engaged Buddhism that very much follow. Uh, we took is it Dr. Cohn? Oh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Dr. Cohn. Dr. Cohn's mm -hmm. uh, just about like you know liberation theology, and it's just really for me things that I that I I generally follow that. Are just great already connected with the the tradition of you know the civil rights movement and and liberation theology, um, especially I'll just read a few but it'll, but it'll connect you to your question about mm -hmm. you know being being you know being a black man also in writing but uh, some of the key points that I really like uh, in the fourteen precepts um, do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering mm -hmm. do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering and life in the world. Find ways to be with those who are suffering, including personal contact, visits, images, and sounds. By such means, you awaken yourself and others to the reality of suffering in the world. So and I've seen that thing like don't look away, right, you know, right. which is one thing. That's why it's you know, it's about the engaged, engaged Buddhism. Um, wow, there's 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 just several ones. There's uh, yeah, um. Yeah, do not use the Buddhist community for personal gain or profit or transform your community uh, into like a like. Well, in their case, it's a political party. But uh -huh. if, one key thing is um, you should take a clear stand against oppression and injustice and you should strive to change the situation without engaging in partisan conflicts. Like mm -hmm. where is that 
that common ground. Right. Mm-hmm. So I always think about that. But um, some of the texts that I read, especially because with the Insight Meditation Community in Washington, D.C., they have a People of Color Sangha, uh, which was really created because, um, you know, being Buddhist, they were aware that there were still these, you know, these discrepancies. And, you know, you have people of color coming into a Buddhist community and it would be like primarily white. Mm-hmm. And then even within those communities where there's supposed to be mindfulness and and meditation still you know the reality that exists is this this is still like whether we're talking about discrimination or racism or even to a point where people of color would speak about particular issues that they felt were connected to being a bodhisattva and having like the larger white buddhist community kind of being like we don't understand or Mm -hmm. let's table that for another time Mm -hmm. but there have always been um really amazing connections and so there's a people of color sangha where uh as a group you know just buddhists and practitioners get together and we actually have like a period where we sit as a group we meditate and we speak on Mm. you know what's going on in 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 the world in our communities and and within the buddhist community and Mm. what what we do to kind of work with that um and to adjust with that and how do we make change in the in in our communities um, but two books I really love uh, are by two practicing Buddhists. There's Being Black, Zen, and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace by um, Angela Kyoto Williams, um, who's really amazing. And she just talks about the universal breakdown of Buddhism coming from her being black and also being a woman. And what does that mean and how do black people relate to Buddhism and you know, their connections to it and how do they also negotiate and navigate that with also coming from Christian traditions. And then there's the writer, Charles Johnson, who writes fiction and essays. And he also talks about his connection as a black writer with Buddhism, how that's affected him and how it's also in the legacy of the, of the um, Harlem Renaissance. So there are writers um, in the past, in the present who were very connected with Buddhism. Like I think of, um, like Gene Toomer, who a lot of people were like, oh, wow, he was very much connected with like Eastern philosophies. And uh, yeah, that's yeah. kind of the, the connection. And for me, it just it, it, it just happens to work be, be, being black and still following some of the tenets from my childhood, you know, growing up Christian that still connect very much with the, the 14 precepts of engaged Buddhism. To mm-hmm. me, sometimes they run, you know, side by side. Yeah, it's beautiful to hear about because I think the popular conception or image of Buddhism is not one that we see necessarily engages in that in that way, mm-hmm. and and so to hear that reflection on it, it I think it, you know it's very it's eye opening, it's re, it's educational. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a uh, a quick break. We've been um, talking with poet Derek Wesson Brown, uh, a practicing Buddhist, and Elder Aaron Jenkins of um, the Pentecostal tradition. This is W O W D ninety four point three Tacoma Radio. Interfaith-ish.
This is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM, our biweekly show where we discuss common gr- our common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and I'm joined by Aaron Jenkins of The Expectations Project and poet Derek Wesson-Brown. We've uh, already explored a number of our, our guest backgrounds uh, during uh, the first um, part of our show. And now we take some time to turn the mics over to our guests to give them the floor to ask uh, each other anything that they've wanted to know about each other's traditions or beliefs, things that we have may, maybe never asked of someone of the tradition in question, never known to ask, uh, or just flat out misunderstood. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to my two guests, Aaron and Derek. Take it away. I have a question for you, Derek. So... Uh, two things that come to mind. We've been talking about uh, Reverend Cohn and black liberation theology. I wonder if you can speak a little bit. My understanding of Buddhism is that it has a founding in uh, in Asia uh, or an Asian culture, um, and you can correct me on that. And I just wonder, you know, as religions that are founded outside of the West come to the West, they are met with, you know, the qualities in the West. So, you know, economic uh, pieces, but also again race and culture. I wonder, from your perspective, how has Buddhism, um, or in your practice, how has Buddhism kind of how has that interacted with it? Is there um, an interaction of race within the faith? Um, if if that's something that brings people together, if it's you know in other practices, uh, things that have to be called out. I know within Christianity, uh, some denominations were created in response to again the interaction of religion and culture. Uh, so the African Methodist Episcopal Church came out of, you know, a tradition of needing a space for African Americans to be able to practice their faith. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit. Sure. Um, and again, I, I speak from my experience. Sure, sure. Uh, I really, um, when I when I think about like how I was intro- introduced and in, you know at least to the to the first school of of Buddhism, which was SGI, and what mm-hmm. I what was. I had heard about it. I remember hearing about it as a kid. Mm-hmm. And what I what I noticed later was, you know, when I went to the to like the like the first of the of the meetings and the gatherings and such, I was just like, Oh, you know what, it actually reminds me of, you know, coming to a degree to church, to sure. like a congreg sure. to like a congregation. Like we met on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a period of, you know, chanting but also um, you know, speaking speaking about, you know, the various like texts and lotus sutras that, you know, really kind of you know kind of like may mold the foundation for um for for SGI and then also really the the adherence to 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 chanting which is very much connected to prayer mm-hmm. um and i think for a lot of black folks moving shifting from uh you know from christianity or from whatever traditions but still still having realizing that oh man there's still that 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 need for prayer and mm-hmm. continued prayer, and 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 doing that among your among your your, con- your the congregation or your or your or your your family, sure. you know, then that really really uh, was familiar, and so it was almost like that shift of oh, some people thinking oh we're gonna they're gonna be like you know you know hitting gongs and things like that, not so much mm-hmm. you know like the stereotypical stuff, but just for me very much like when I when we would do the chanting of 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 the Lotus Sutra. And it reminded me so much of, you know, when I was a child of like the prayers like in the congregation or uh, or hymn lining, mm-hmm. like the tradition of like the elders getting up and then they're, you know, they're singing these old hymns. Yeah. And, it, and it has almost like a, a meditative tone because there is no 
you know, no music, but it's literally just coming from Voice. the back. So those voices. So it's very much like a ohm, or it's very much like a chant, and it still brought brings you to that same space. So, mm -hmm. so in a sense, I can, you know, those traditions kind of being brought together, or 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 you know, that's why I think like a lot of black people like gravitated toward. They're like, oh, cool, this is. I'm familiar with this. This this works and this and this connects. Um and um and I'm trying to remember where we were going. Oh no, you you answered it well. I mean you just brought in the cultural piece of your your background growing up in Christianity mm -hmm. and making the connections between that and Buddhism. I yeah. think my question was that just, you know, how do you engage Buddhism as a faith that is a non Western faith? And how, how does your culture show up in it? Um I think it it, it definitely shows up because for me, my understanding of even within the black church, when we mm -hmm. would go to, like, you know, going going to church on Sunday, and our and our pastor, yes, we would talk about, you know, we would talk about scripture and such. But at the same time, when he gets when he would get into his his sermon, and you know, I always think about uh, Reverend Jones, which is very rich language, and he mm -hmm. definitely was a scholar. But mm -hmm. then when he when he sat, when it was time to get down to to business and speaking on like. Cult, you know, like community ills and things like that. He he made it very very plain, right. and so at the same time, even I realized even afterwards when we would pray, you know, post wise, I I the energy of the prayer changed. Mm -hmm. So you knew that okay, we're praying. You know what our prayers are directed towards. You could just feel like that 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 energy. And for the same with me of sitting still. And that was one thing as a child I could not do right. was sit right. still. You put me in that sanctuary in the pew, and I was sitting still. My grandmother would be like, "Here's some peppermint." Mm -hmm. my, my mom has some snacks. She was like, "We got to hold it down." But for me now, it's mm -hmm. the method of I'm able to, I'm able to sit still. Sure. And when for me getting getting to that place of quiet, and then also really exploring, you know, what my you know when I'm meditating, and I have a list of things that I'm I'm focusing on as far as me. It's still very much connection to prayer. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'm also a lot more mindful of sending prayers out. So I still have a prayer list. Yeah. Like, like, you know, like you have your sick and shut in list mm -hmm. at church, you know, folks say, okay, we need to pray for this person. Right. Like we have, uh, you know, when I send out meta or like positive prayer or, um, or, and I just forgot the term, but yeah, just sending out mm -hmm. some of the similar things. So there's a lot of the cultural connections for me was still there. So it wasn't as, aliens i thought it was because of my my way my way in mm -hmm. so if that makes sense yes um yeah i definitely wanted to talk about uh, one question is is there a i think what does it mean to to be an el to be an elder mm -hmm. in the church because that's a term that i've heard because between you and i i'm like well you you're not that old right, so right. but you know but but again you know what does it mean to to be an elder of a church because I sure. remember seeing folks and when they say elders of the church, I saw older person, the older person and generally older black men, like considerably older black men. Sure. And even when I go visit to like some of my family churches, elders now, now they're, they're few and far between. I don't see as many old men, mm -hmm. you know, and we could talk about that culturally, but what does that mean to be an elder? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that word, the word play has a meaning as well as a practice. So within uh, the church that I attend in our tradition, uh, an elder is someone who, you know, the scripture that says study to show yourself approved. Mm -hmm. So it's someone who's completed study, training, um, an intentional practice uh, to not only understand their faith and their tradition, 
uh, but to take on a leadership responsibility. So mm-hmm. when I think of elder uh, within the church as someone who's a minister, it's also someone who's taking on that responsibility and study uh, to be able to be in that elevated place. And elevated isn't even the right word because I <laughs> I still feel like a play, regular person, right? Like Because mm-hmm. when I think of elder, I also think of an older person. Yeah. But I think there's such a responsibility now, um, particularly for the things that are facing the community as a whole, right? So the, in America, in Washington, D.C., but also in our faith community, you know, I teach Sunday school to the young people. Mm. Uh, I play percussion. Uh, I do sound, right? So I'm really engaged. And I, real, I realize that there's a season in our lives as young, as young men or as men that, and as women too, but there's a season where we have this energy and we should be putting it to good use. Uh, and I find that the title elder is one that I, I hold in great respect and still do the work, right? Still mm-hmm. make sure that you're connecting and using all of your talents. And for me, all of my talents and skills to not only better the church, but to also influence and impact my community in a positive way. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Guys, I could listen to you guys talking all day long. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it before, I, you know, and I, or I've said it before, and, and I'll say it again, that it's just, you know, it's such a, a joy in my heart to have, to have the three of us in the room together. Sure. And uh, so I'm glad that, uh, glad that you guys were able to, to come by. But sadly, um, our hour is, is uh, about up. No. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to make way for our, our next show here on, on Tacoma Radio. And so we're going to have to put a wrap on Interfaith-ish for this uh, week. I want to um, extend my, my congratulations again to my guests, Aaron Jenkins of the Ex- Expectations Project and mm-hmm. Derek Weston-Brown, uh, poet and author and educator. <laughs> uh, thank you both for, for joining me today. Well, thanks thank for having you. us. Thanks really for, appreciate yeah, the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to hopefully getting together with you guys again this weekend, see a little little film that's coming out, a <laughs> little Avengers it. Infinity yes, War. Something, yes, something. yes, let's yes. do it. And uh, I want to thank again my uh, my fellow interfaith Istronauts, my team behind the scenes, Miranda Hovmeyer and birthday gal Sue Katz Miller. Hey, bon anniversaire and paraben to you, Sue. And it's always, a, as always, a special shout out to Jeff Philosopher for hooking us up with our music, our theme music. Thank you, dear listeners, for spending your time with us. Let us know if there's interfaith ish. You wish to dish by writing us an email at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks on Wednesday, May 16th at 9 a.m. with our next live episode. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 for great music and programs seven days a week. Streaming online at TacomaRadio.org. Go there for a full program schedule. Up next is Borderlines with Bobby Hill on the People's Voice of Choice, Tacoma Radio, WOWD 94.3 FM.